Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. Not only does my show continue the narrative of Mike Duncan's History of Rome podcast, but it also serves as something of an origin story for Russia itself. Rus raiders are just about to appear in our 9th century narrative, so come check it out. But for now, let's jump ahead to see what's happening on the eastern border. Armenian radio gets asked, is there life on Mars? Armenian radio answers, it doesn't matter. Once we'll get there, they'll have communism too. You know, I recently watched television. I do that rarely, because I don't own one. But I was at my dad's place in Ludza, and on the Russian TV, Ren TV program, which is famous for its outrageous claims and ancient aliens and whatever, like what History Channel has become, there was a show about the first cosmonauts. So I just kind of left it on, because I was doing this show and more information is always useful. For half of an hour, with deep conviction and hatred, there was this story about a a libel campaign done by the British, British press in the 1960s. They were telling that some British newspaper, for a number of years, was constantly writing lies and making Soviets look bad when talking about more than 10 unknown lost Soviet cosmonauts, who died during secret launches and they even, apparently, had went so far as to mention some invented surnames. That what was the TV program were claiming anyways. It's not what this show's about, though, but it's relevant. Of course, the standard attitude of all the pro-Moscow programs is that the West is trying to make Russia look bad again, but we're all polished angels. But the fun part was that the lead guy of the TV program pronounced the name of the British newspaper which did this, apparently. (laughs) And I started laughing. Like, honestly, laughing terribly. He mentioned the name of the newspaper in such a voice, with such hate, as if he didn't know anything about it. But I did, and it was funny. You see, the newspaper was Daily Worker, the newspaper of the Communist Party of Great Britain, which was renamed to Morning Star in 1966. You could buy this newspaper in every press kiosk in the USSR, and students were buying this to pass their English exams. We also had a French and German communist newspapers. Support for our working class brothers was widespread. It's clear that 
obviously a newspaper that was printed for Soviet money and whose print was 99% sold in the USSR, that is, I doubt that the British people even knew such a newspaper existed, was totally and obviously able to create a smear campaign on the Soviet cosmonauts in Britain. This is how we live today, comrades. It's a crisis. But those... those are ever-present. Crises are as old as humanity, and they happen for the craziest reasons, too. Mine happened when, after throwing two editions of this show's script out, I just said fuck it and decided to present what I have here. And to hell with it, my show's explicit on iTunes anyways because of all the reports, so, you know, who cares. The crisis that we'll be talking about today is twofold. Firstly, as always, risky Soviet projects involve deaths. In this case, not many deaths, but some that I find truly horrifying. Secondly, there's this thing called Sputnik Crisis that sparked the whole space race. The term Sputnik Crisis was coined by then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower. The satellite Sputnik 1 was launched on October 4, 1957, from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. What you don't probably know, listeners, is that Sputnik literally translates to satellite, in all the same possible meaning that you could use the term in, in English. So, all the English texts that I read on this sound kind of silly when you know the translation. This shall also become important in this conversation, for which I have to set some rules right here. As I said, this is the third iteration of my Space Race episode. You won't hear the first two, they're dead and gone, because I went over my head when I decided to do this even more than I did with Chernobyl. Secondly, this won't be a history of rocketry and the development of the various spacecrafts with all the statistics. There's a podcast for that too, it's called Space Rocket History. Look at that if you're into the technical details. Of course, we can't avoid them completely, but that's not the point. What comes into your head when I say space race? Well, I have two images. First is Yuri Gagarin in his iconic space suit being the first human in space, and the second one is the famous moon landing by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And not exactly how much fuel efficiency Apollo 11 had while making this trip. My podcast is, as one reviewer on iTunes said, a people thing. So is the space race, in my opinion. At least, the parts that matter about the space race. Because I'm not qualified, and some of my sources are also blatantly wrong about the technical details, I'll skip over them and make my own story. The people story. And this recording might go into weird places and unexpected tangents, but hey, for you people, who are my regular listeners, it won't be a surprise that we go to weird places here. And to the new listeners... Well, if you enjoy my strange accent, then better be ready that we'll cover some topics that are supposed to touch you personally. This is not a kid's show, and apparently offensive to Putin's regime. Might as well embrace the reputation, right? So, now you know the rules. Let's start with the basics, then. After Sputnik launched, Mr. Eisenhower decided that, wow, those damn commies are in front of us in tech as USA's own Project Vanguard, which had attempted to do the same thing, had crashed twice before. As I've mentioned in the Khrushchev episode, this was a big deal. Because, like I said there, the Soviets used their ICBM rockets for the launches, including the famous Gagarin one. The problem, as you can recall if you've listened to that episode, was that they were utterly useless as carriers for nuclear warheads, due to their unreliability. One of them exploded during testing, killing a bunch of people. But seriously, check out the beginning of the end episode for that. They took so long to fuel up and launch that as ICBMs, they would just be destroyed by your Minuteman missiles from the States. 
that it made no practical sense for them to be used as ICBMs. But hey, nobody will shoot down something that we launch into space, and it'll gain prestige, so USSR did just that. But, at the time, your people didn't know all the faults of the Soviet space program, and the media went a bit crazy. On October 9, 1957, the famous science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke said that, quote, The day Sputnik orbited around the Earth, the United States became a second-rate power. And Khrushchev himself stated that, quote, Our potential enemies cringe in fright. But that fright was all the USSR had at the time. Its military power, when it came to the only thing that really mattered, nuclear weapons, was nowhere near the level of the USA. Sure, the Soviets could take over anyone and anything with conventional arms up until the very end. Their tank armies truly were invincible. But they wouldn't matter, as the USA couldn't be harmed by them. So even if they blasted through whole Western Europe, it wouldn't help them one bit if everything would be nuked. And if the people from other Cold War podcasts tell you otherwise, they're buying propaganda hook, line, and sinker. The launch spurred a series of initiatives by the United States, ranging from defense to education. Increased emphasis was placed on the Navy's Project Vanguard to launch an American satellite into orbit. The preceding Explorer program that saw the Army launch the first American satellite into orbit on 31st January 1958 also saw a revival. By February 1958, the military-industrial complex wanted a high-level Department of Defense organization to execute these R&D projects and created the Advanced Research Projects Agency. This was later renamed the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. On 29th of July 1958, President Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, which was the creation of NASA. So hey, Sputnik helped you guys more than it helped us. But yeah, the Soviets. They wanted more, and quickly. But there's only so much that you can do with shoddy rockets and your top rocket scientists doing their work from, essentially, gulags. With death penalties from failure. And the main guy involved here is Sergei Korolev, the person responsible for most of the rocket science in the USSR. You should have heard of him. Although, before his death, he was often referred to only as the chief designer, because the Soviet leadership feared that the United States would send agents to assassinate him. Only many years later was he publicly acknowledged as the lead man behind Soviet success in space. This man was arrested for alleged mismanagement of funds because uh, he had spent the money on unsuccessful experiments with rocket devices. He was imprisoned in 1938 for almost six years, including some months in a Kolyma labor camp. That is literally in one of the most harshest gulags the Soviet Union ever had. He was released afterwards, but his work on space and ballistic rocketry was also done in secrecy, in a prison-like situation. Sure, he got to sleep in a nice soft bed and got all the sausage in the Soviet Union without lines, but the nice men from KGB were watching him literally all the time. It was less of, we'll reward you for good work, and more of, we won't shoot you and all your family. Really, this was so for everyone involved. The involved people were extremely loyal to each other because of this. And this shall become important later, so take note. But yeah, Korolev, The man single-handedly responsible for all the Soviet achievements. His name got pub- publicized only on his death day, and his achievements told the Soviet public after that. He died from a stroke, 
I guess his nerves just couldn't hold it. He built all the Soviet space rockets, but he had to do it while rushing everything in terrible conditions without any pay. And simply tremendous amounts of stress. He died in 1966. And before that, he wrote a report in 1965 about the Soviet chances in the space race. The report was a condemnation of all the idiocy that was going on, blatantly saying that the Soviets had zero chances on winning this, that they had lost by that time already and that it just couldn't continue like that. The report's only been made public in the 90s, but it's a devastating document, laying bare all the terrible, awful things that Soviets did. And this, this coming from the man who launched the first satellite, the first living being, and the first human into space. He thought the Soviet space program was doomed before USA ever did. And you know what? I can't blame him. He was just a huge rocket nerd. He loved his inventions and all the rockets. But when your underlings literally burn your rockets to sell the rocket fuel as booze, and when the materials sent to build the rockets are literally crap because of corruption and with the general inefficiency being there, there's only so much that you can do. But, you know, let's start at the beginning and do this in some sort of a chronological matter. Sputnik 1 Sputnik was a metal ball, 59 centimeters or 23 inches in diameter. It had four antennae, it circled the Earth, and it was beeping. It's not that much to talk about, so it simply couldn't screw that one up. It beeped for 21 days until its batteries ran out, and then it burned on re-entry in the 4th of January 1958, a after spending three months in orbit. There, now we burned a chunk of metal. Let's get past that one and move on to much more interesting Sputnik 2. It was a 4 meter high, cone-shaped capsule with a base diameter of 2 meters. NASA website calls it the first biological spacecraft, by which means that it had a living being inside of it. That living being was a dog, called Laika, translating to Barker in English. Many others followed, Belka, Strelka, Damka, and Krasavka. Afterwards, because of this, there was a popular joke in the USSR. Gagarin always wanted to be the first living thing in space, but some bitches beat him to it. There was also another one. Belka, Strelka, and a Soviet soldier get sent into space. Orders through the radio channel start to come in. Belka, woof, press the red button, woof, woof. Strelka, woof, press the black button, woof, woof. Soldier Ivanov, woof, stop woofing, feed the dogs, and God forbid, just don't touch anything. We love the space dogs. The government loved the space dogs. Everyone loved the space dogs. They were on television, the whole world followed them, but they died horribly. Well, at least Laika did, and some others too, by freezing to death. <sighs> Obviously, it wasn't intended for the Laika to ever return to Earth normally. But people thought that the dog was euthanized by feeding her poisoned food automatically. Well, in 2002, it was revealed that she died in one of the most horrifying ways possible within hours of the launch. Sputnik 2, it turned out, was rushed to be completed. Khrushchev was neither the wisest nor the most patient of men. The whole thing had been planned and put together in four weeks, in a typical Soviet style, so my listeners should not be surprised to know that the thermal insulation system broke right away. Laika, whose heart really wasn't accustomed to such a harsh environment, 
found herself in a cabin that was about 104 degrees hot. She died about 6 hours from launch. Oh, and those dog shuttles were equipped with a self-destruct mechanism just in case. So when that stuff activated, two dogs found themselves in the Russian winter where people got to them only shortly before they became icicles. At one point, though, at one point, the dogs started to come down safely. So, this is where the Soviets decided that sending, sending actual people there would be a nice idea. Oh, and that becomes even more fun. But before that, here's a word from our Mission Central. Greetings, comrades. This is Alice, Mission Control. We apologize for the inconvenience with some of our listeners, have reported to us namely that our early shows are no longer accessible through iTunes or Stitcher. Sadly, there is nothing much that we can do about it currently, so if you haven't heard them but would like to, please go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and download them there. The problem seems to be with our RSS feed, maybe because we're using FeedBurner. But don't worry, we'll fix that as soon as possible. Of course, we invite everyone to listen to that site in general, for all the pictures accompanying our shows, and for the comment section. Our PayPal and Patreon supporters should send us an email with their shipping address, as we've lost some of those. Also, there's a gift on our Patreon for our supporters that is already posted, and PayPal people will get it once they send us their email. Also... We've decided, thanks to Mark Sands, that we'll be doing live commentary tracks for our Patreon and PayPal supporters as an additional way of saying thank you to you. We will start by doing one on Rocky IV, which will be available by the end of April. If you're interested and want to support the show, donate to us through PayPal or better yet, head over to patreon.com slash the eastern border and become a supporter to enjoy this extra material and participate in our Soviet souvenirs draw which is happening at the end of the month. A thank you goes out to Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium podcast, who provided intro for this show. He makes a great podcast about, well, History of Byzantium. We enjoy his show a lot, and we recommend that you check it out if you haven't already. We are, as always, recommending you to visit darkmyths.org to check out other shows from the collective made by our great and professional comrades. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Eastern underscore border or on facebook and please write us some reviews on itunes and stitcher if everybody did this the world would be a greater place and possibly if you donated just a dollar per episode we could get married in no what (laughs) uh Yes, folks, your donations are paying for the show for Christoph's visit to the USA, and if we get enough of them, our marriage. (laughs) Obviously, soliciting it is not easy, but we're trying to make up for it with the quality of the show, which we're trying to increase constantly. Goodbye. This was Alice. Happiness is mandatory. And welcome back to the show. We're about to shoot Gagarin into space. That happened on April the 12th, 1961. That's when we truly reached the sky, so to speak. The ship was called Vostok 1. Vostok 1, in proper pronunciation. Orient, or East, if you translate it to English. Yuri Gagarin was launched in the capsule from Baikonur Cosmodrome. While we're at it, Baikonur Cosmodrome 
is the world's first and largest operational space launch facility. It's located in the desert steppe of Kazakhstan, about 200 kilometers, that's around 120 miles, east of the Aral Sea, north of the Sirdarya River. It is leased right now by the Kazakh government to Russia, which is going to be in Russia's use until 2050, and is managed jointly by the Roscosmos State Corporation and the Russian Aerospace Forces. It is still used today with all manned Russian space flights launched from there. And also tons of other launches, like commercial ones, are happening there each year. Now, Gagarin. After writing a letter to his family and reviewing the official reports of his death that would be published if he would die during the mission, he was launched into space. He circled the Earth once, spending 108 minutes in space, and reported feeling great when landed. Of course, he was massively famous upon landing. Soviet Union saw a bunch of space-related names given to newborns in that and the following years. Gagarin, Vostok, Cosmos, Sputnik, Cosmonautica. And my favorite, which has, by the way, still been registered to a newborn in Latvia in 2015. <clears throat> Prepare for this. Galacticon. Or, in proper Russian pronunciation, Galacticon. To all the parents out there, Whenever you look at your children, now you'll always know that you could have named him Galacticon. If any Galacticons are listening to this show, don't change your name ever. But that wasn't Gagarin's only impact. His iconic, informal phrase before the launch, which he said back to the mission control after all the testing has been done, was Payekhali, or Let's Drive. It became the reference point and the motto of space race in the Eastern Bloc. Also, if you'll Google up Gagarin to look how the man looked in his spacesuit, you'll notice that there are two versions of the suit. One with the so common CCCP, which is SSSR when written in Kyrillic, and is the abbreviation that Russian of the Russian name of the Soviet Union, and there's a picture without it. It's the same suit, and these pictures were taken before launch. We'll have one on our page with this show. So, the letters were hand-painted on the suit basically minutes before launch. It should be telling about how the things were going. As the Soviet people understood that, you know, all the world is going to be looking at Gagarin. But here we are, having dressed the guy in some weird space suit which is blank. Not very cool looking, and doesn't represent the USSR that much. And what if, just what if, he lands in some, we- some field somewhere, in a village, with people who might mistake him for an American spy or something. I mean, in the beginning, that famous U-2 pilot was also mistaken for an alien by the villagers who found him. So, they decided to mark Gagarin with these letters. The first idea was to draw a red star on the spacesuit. But the local artist's hands were shaking because of all the excitement going on around there, and he couldn't guarantee to make that look nice enough. So, we got this instead. Also, Gagarin was chosen over his colleagues, Herman Titov, who later became the second Soviet cosmonaut in space, and Grigory Nilubov, because he was literally the small. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Most of them. And also, he was completely and purely ethnically Russian. It was important at that time that the first man into space should be a complete and utter ethnic Russian. It's some sort of a racist theory, but I've seen that reported in multiple sites. You couldn't have someone who was half Ukrainian or or uh, who was half Ukrainian or, God forbid, from the Baltics. No, this guy had to be a pure-blood Russian. What's even more, he had to come from the working-class families, as Khrushchev was planning on using that in the propaganda that the first man in space, the Soviet Union, has advanced so much that we can literally put sons of farmers and basic workers into space. Look at how we, how great we are. And uh, although Herman Titov also kind of qualified, he wasn't a son of a simple farmer. He was the son of a local countryside school school teacher. So he kind of qualified, but kind of didn't. So he was chosen as the backup if Gagarin, for some reason, couldn't do it. But yeah, Vostok, but, but the smaller size issues also mattered a lot, as the Vostok rockets were not the pinnacle of human engineering. So the selected cosmonauts were all small in stature and as short as possible. Gagarin was the second smallest of them. Herman Titov was a bit skinnier than he was, but you know, he couldn't qualify for political reasons. And also, the smaller size thing is even more explainable, because here we hit a bit of a darker side on his uh, this whole thing once again. The idea that there were unsuccessful Soviet launches in space before Gagarin is a myth. I've checked that one out, and they weren't that incompetent. They did a lot of testing, but there, however, was a death involved of all of this already. You see, together with Gagarin... 19 other cosmonauts were undergoing training for the flights in the Vostok program. Valentin Bondarenko was one of them. He died on the 23rd of March, 1961, three weeks before Gagarin's flight. It was the 10th day of a 15-day endurance experiment in a low-pressure altitude chamber at the Institute of Biomedical Problems in Moscow. See, the chamber's atmosphere was at least 50% oxygen. Bondarenko, having completed work for that day, removed some monitoring biosensors from his body and washed his skin with an alcohol-soaked cotton ball, which he then carelessly threw away. The cotton ball landed on an electric hot plate, which he was using to brew a cup of tea. The The cotton ignited, and Bondarenko tried to smother the flames with the sleeve of his woolen coveralls which caught on fire in the chamber's oxygen-rich atmosphere. Because of the pressure difference, it took a watching doctor nearly half an hour to open the chamber's doors. Bondarenko's clothing burned up until almost all the oxygen in the chamber was used up. He had suffered third-degree burns over most of his body. The attending physician at Botkin Hospital, surgeon and traumatologist Vladimir Goliachovsky, recalled in 1984 that 
While attempting to start an intravenous drip, the only blood vessels he could find for inserting a needle were on the soles of Bondarenko's feet, where his flight boots had warded off the flames. According to Golyakovsky, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin spent several hours at the hospital as the death watch officer, so to speak. And Bondarenko died of shock 16 hours after the accident. Like I said, less than three weeks before Gagarin's historic Vostok 1 first space flight. His death was covered up, completely. He was erased from the training group's photos, and nobody knew that Bondarenko ever existed. This, by the way, was one of the reasons why the lost cosmonaut myth started. You can look at the edited photos on our site. The West learned about this event in the 1980 because of some Soviet defectors. But we, over here, we learned about Bondarenko's death only in 1986, in an article in the newspaper Izvestia, during the Glasnost era, which we have been looking at in the previous episodes. The most tragic death of the whole space race for communists, however, was what I'll talk about next. Even thinking about it fills me with horror. We're talking about Vladimir Komarov here. In 1967, when the USSR was starting to lag behind the America already, to show the world that the Soviets were still really serious about this whole space thing, our old comrade, General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev, decided to stage a spectacular mid-space meeting and connection between two Soviet spaceships. The plan was to launch a capsule, the Soyuz-1, with Komarov inside. The next day, a second vehicle would take off, with two additional cosmonauts. The two vehicles would meet, dock, Komarov would crawl from one vehicle to the other, exchanging places with a colleague, and come home in the second ship. It would be, Brezhnev hoped, a Soviet triumph, a glorious thing on the 50th anniversary of the communist revolution. Brezhnev had made it very clear that he wanted this to happen. Komarov was chosen as the lead in this operation. The problem was Gagarin. He was assigned to this mission as a backup, in case Komarov couldn't do it. Already a Soviet hero, getting his medals and everything, the first man ever in space, and massively famous throughout the planet, he and some senior technicians had inspected the Soyuz 1, and had found, reportingly, 203 structural problems serious problems that would make this machine dangerous to navigate in space. The mission, Gagarin suggested, should be postponed. But the revolution anniversary couldn't be postponed, and so this flight had to happen. To the regular listeners, it should be obvious that Soviets put appearances before human lives at all times. But the cosmonauts tried to stop this. Gagarin wrote a ten-page memo and gave it to his best friend in the KGB, Vinyamin Rusayev, but nobody really dared to send it up in the chain of command. Everyone who saw that memo, including Rusayev himself, was demoted, fired, or sent to diplomatic Siberia, or just Siberia. With less than a month to go before the launch, Komarov realized that everyone already knew postponement was not an option. He met with Rusayev, the now, the now demoted KGB agent, and said, quote, I'm not going to make it back from this flight. Rosayev asked, well, why not refuse? Komaro reportedly answered, if I don't make this flight, they'll send the backup pilot instead. That was Yuri Gagarin. 
Vladimir Komarov just couldn't do that to his friend. He said, quote, that's Yura, and he'll die instead of me. We've got to take care of him, end quote. Komarov then burst into tears. On launch day, April 23rd, 1967, Russian journalist Yaroslav Golovanov reported that Gagarin had showed up at the launch site and demanded to be put into a spacesuit, though no one was expecting him to fly. Golovanov called this behavior, quote, a sudden caprice. Though, afterwards, some observers thought Gagarin was trying to muscle onto the flight to save his friend. It didn't happen. The Soyuz left Earth with Komarov on board. Once the Soyuz began to orbit the Earth, the failures began. Antennas didn't open properly. Power was compromised. Navigation proved difficult. The next day's launch had to be cancelled. And worse, Komarov's chances for a safe return to Earth, well, they were gone by that point. All the while, U.S. intelligence was listening in. The National Security Agency had a facility at an Air Force base near Istanbul. Previous reports said that U.S. listeners knew something was wrong. The next fragment, which you'll hear, is Komarov's dying words, picked up by United States intelligence, as he's screaming in rage while falling to earth and burning up in the atmosphere. It's hard to make out, but he mentions that the heat in the cabin is climbing, is full with rage, and clearly can be heard saying killed in Russian, obviously, presumably talking about the government that just had done this to him. Afterwards, his burnt-up remains were buried with full military honors. They actually have a picture of those remains during the funeral, as he received an open-casket one, for some reason. It doesn't look terrifying until you learn what's in the picture. This will be up on the site as well to fully document what the Soviets could do to a man who spent his last moments saving his best friend and crying in rage as he burned alive inside a metal capsule. What makes this truly terrifying is that his wife was also in the call. She asked him what to tell their children. Let that sink in for a bit. Gagarin was openly furious about this, and talked to his friends about what had happened, 
An extremely unlikely rumor has it that he made it to Brezhnev and threw a glass of water in his face. He could have met Brezhnev, but I doubt that this part was true, even though I really wish it would. At any rate, Gagarin in 1967 was far from Gagarin in 1961. He himself died a year later, as he had continued as a test pilot, and his plane crashed. After which, <clears throat> after which, Soviets started to be more cautious and started to take their pilots' lives more carefully. Sadly, just kidding. Of course they didn't. Soviet space program was full with craziness. Even after the Americans managed to put a man on the moon, the race was still on. I mean, you also kept sending more people there and did a lot of things after that. It was on, but it was winding down a bit. But the Soviets had many things planned to recapture the initiative. Because all of this was just a major league game of one-upping for them. And those things were crazy. And some had been planned for a long while. They wanted to go to Mars. The planning for this had started in 1959 already. But the idea had proven unrealistic. So they switched, as my source website Encyclopedia Astronautica tells me, to a bit more realistic one, that is. To a Mars or Venus flyby mission. Which then, which then got turned into, into a Mars and Venus flyby mission. To do that, a three-crewed TMK-1 spaceship would be placed in near-Earth orbit by a launch of the N-1 rocket, which was the same one that Soviets planned to use to reach the moon. There were two variants of the next mission phase. In the first, the TMK-1 was launched manned. In the second variant, the TMK-1 would be launched unmanned, then the crew would be launched in a, in a Sevier or Soyuz spacecraft, docked with the TMK-1, and transferred to the Mars craft. A liquid oxygen-slash-kerosene trans-Mars injection stage would boost it on its long trip towards Mars. After 10.5 months, it would, it would fly by Mars, dropping remote-controlled landers, and then be flung by the gravity of Mars into an Earth return trajectory. Only minor mid-course maneuvers would be required. A variation of this scenario was developed by Maximov, a lead scientist on the project, and his group. And that variation involved flybys of Venus on the return voyage, and was given the codename Mavr to combine Mars and Venera names. They had some interesting sci-fi-ish ideas going on there, like they were expecting to grow 20-50% to 50 of the crew's food in hydrophonic greenhouses on the ship. Also, probably they were just hoping for the best when it comes to periods of prolonged weightlessness, since no one had gone longer than a few days in space before that. But the craziness, it doesn't end here. In another version, a later version of this, a six-man crew were planned to actually land on Mars and live there for a year as they explored the Red Planet from pole to pole. Also, while there, they would construct a nuclear-powered Mars train for getting around. Because why not? And they seriously worked on the project. But sadly, the experimental rockets that were supposed to be used for this during the testing stage from 1969 to 1972 exploded. All of them exploded. Because, as it later turned out, the flaw was simply not using your NASA methods. Instead of using liquid oxygen and hydrogen like NASA, 
the Soviets went with the method of mixing benzene with kerosene. Which, while certainly as anti-capitalist as it gets, is a dangerous mix that is way more compostable than gasoline. Which is why you probably shouldn't use that to power rockets that are supposed to travel to Mars, drop landers, then fly by, then go to Venus, then come back, and the next mission is supposed to live there on for a year. Also, while testing these crazy plans, before saner people prevailed and USSR stopped wasting money to conquer space with inefficiency, they had, they had put up their space station there. It was called Salyut 1. That one was important in their Mars-Venus plans. So obviously they had to put people there and figure out how to use that properly. Firstly, they sent the Soyuz 10 mission. Now, it managed some success. It's soft docked, but had not been able to enter due to latching problems. So the next mission was Soyuz 11, which launched and entered the Salyut space station on the June 7th, 1971. The, th- the three crew members were Georgi Dobrovolsky, Vladislav Valkov, and Viktor Patsayev. They remained on board for 22 days, beating the space endurance records at the time, and supposedly planning on how they'll be able to spend their vacations on Mars or something. Seriously, they had some fun adventures abroad there. Upon first entering the station, they had encountered a smoky and burnt atmosphere, and after replacing a part of the ventilation system, they had to spend the next day back in their Soyuz until the air cleared. Their stay in Salyut was productive, including live television broadcasts, by the way. Now, a fire broke out on day 11 on their stay, causing mission planners to consider abandoning it. The planned highlight of the mission was to have been the observation of an N-1 rocket launch, but the launch was postponed. The crew also found that using the exercise treadmill, as they were required to do twice a day, caused the whole station to vibrate. Pravda released news of the mission and regular updates while it was in progress. Obviously, well, not telling the truth to the Soviet people. So, these three guys left the Salyut station the 30th of June, and all died. By this point, I'm full of desperation and dark humor because of how hard and weird it was to make this episode, and about the dark themes here, so please forgive me. On the 30th of, 30th of June, 1971, they, at one point, lost radio contact with the crew, like the crew lost radio contact with the mission control, and after an apparently normal re-entry of the capsule of the Soyuz 11 mission, the recovery team opened the capsule to find the crew dead. Kerim Kerimov, chair of the state commission, recalls, outwardly, there was no damage whatsoever. They knocked on the side, but there was no response from within. On opening the hatch, they found all three men in their couches, motionless, with dark blue patches on their faces and trails of blood from their noses and ears. They removed them from the descent module. Dobrovolsky was still warm. The doctors gave artificial respiration. Based on their reports, the cause of death was suffocation. Later, it was found out that the capsule had depressurized during the preparations for re-entry while still in space, thus killing all of them. And by that, killing pretty much the whole space race thing, as this was the only manned mission ever to be sent to the Salute 1 station. The cosmonauts obviously were given a large state funeral and buried in the Kremlin Wall Necropolis at Red Square, Moscow, near the remains of Yuri Gagarin, which is quite symbolic, with them representing the both ends of the space race. That is not to say that launches were stopped, no, but the race was over for us at that point. 
and people starting to look at the sp- people started to look at the space with some more sanity and launch their missions more carefully and without rushing them so much. And this time, I'm thankfully not joking. The crew of Soyuz 11 were honored. United States astronaut Tom Stafford was one of the pal- was one of the pallbearers. They were also each posthumously awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union medal. They also managed to do quite well getting getting Crater of the Moon, each named after them, and a single hill on Pluto honoring the mission. United States President Richard Nixon issued an official statement following the accident, which I'm going to quote here in full, because it's fun to do so. The American people join in expressing to you and the Soviet people our deepest sympathy on the tragic deaths of the three Soviet cosmonauts. The whole world followed the exploits of these courageous explorers of the unknown, and shares the anguish of their tragedy. But the achievements of cosmonauts Dobrovolsky, Volkov, and Patsayev remain. It will, I am sure, prove to have contributed greatly to the further achievements of the Soviet program for the exploration of space, and thus to widening the man's horizons. Well, they did stop the Soviets from flying by Mars and Venus on the same mission, that's for sure. But I kind of can't imagine Nixon saying this with a bit of smirk in his voice. After all, your side won. <sighs> so that's it for today's show. It's nowhere near a comprehensive and extensive tale on the whole space race thing. It's just the fragments which I found interesting. It's a people thing, like I mentioned in the beginning. I'll be sure to return to this subject if I'll find some more interesting space things to talk about. So don't worry. Also, the next episode is going to be about the 1988 in the Soviet Union and the remarkable changes that it brought to us. In the meantime, enjoy dark myths, space rocket history, and of course, the history of Byzantium. Das vidanje, tovarish. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmagle.